order. Questions to the Prime Minister. Heidi Alexander. Number one, Mr Speaker. Thank you, Mr Speaker. This morning I had meetings with ministerial colleagues and others, and in addition to my duties in this House, I shall have further such meetings later today. Heidi Alexander. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Time and time again, the Prime Minister has said that he wants to protect the poorest and most vulnerable whilst reducing the budget deficit. So can, so can, the, Prime Minister, so can the Prime Minister explain to me and residents of my constituency in Lewisham East why he is heaping huge cuts upon local councils who tend to spend half of their overall budget on child protection, care for the elderly and services for the disabled. Well, let me tell the Honourable Lady what we're doing in Lewisham to protect the most vulnerable. If you look at per-pupil funding in our schools in Lewisham, the per-pupil funding will be maintained at £6,951 per pupil. That is the tenth highest in the country, recognising the level of deprivation, and on top of that, for the first time in our history, we'll be adding a pupil premium of £430 per child. An excellent policy. Mark Reckless. The, the BBC reports that the German finance minister wants to set an interest rate to punish Ireland. Will the Prime Minister confirm that this country wants to help Ireland? Yeah. Well, my right honourable friend will be setting out the details in, of the loan in the second reading of the bill today, but I do think it's worth standing back and asking ourselves why is it we're able to make a loan to Ireland and why is it people are asking us to do that? It's because Britain's economy is out of the danger zone and recovering, and if we'd listened to the party opposite, we'd still be in a hole. Mr. Speaker, Mr. Speaker, can I start by paying tribute to our troops serving in Afghanistan? We owe them a huge debt of gratitude for everything they are doing for us, and our thoughts will be with them and their families who will be apart from them at this time of year. Uh, Mr. Speaker, does the Prime Minister recognise the concern there will be about the rise in unemployment of 35,000 that we saw this morning? Uh, for all those families around the country, does he understand that his confidence and indeed his restatement today that Britain is out of the danger zone will seem very hollow? Well, first of all, let me join the right honourable friend in paying tribute to our forces in Afghanistan, who I visited last week, and also paying tribute to all of their families who will be missing them at Christmas time. And I think, to be fair, under the government he was part of and under this government, we are making big improvements on the contact home, on fax time, telephone time, and all the contact that they need. And that is absolutely right. On the unemployment figures, of course, everyone should be concerned, and I'm concerned by a rise in unemployment. Anyone who loses a job is a tragedy for that person, and we must do everything we can to help people into work. And with the work programme, we will be launching the biggest back-to-work programme in this country for 70 years. To be accurate, these are, whilst part of the figures are disappointing, they are mixed because we do see the claimant count has come down in the unemployment figures and also we're seeing an increase in the number of vacancies in our economy. Every day there are another 10,000 vacancies. So yes, we've got to get the private sector going, increase the number of jobs that are available and over the last six months we have seen 300,000 new private sector jobs. We need more of them and keeping our economy out of the danger zone is the way to get them. 
Mr. Speaker, the Prime Minister does slightly sound like he paints himself as an innocent bystander in relation to the innocent, in relation to the unemployment figures. He should not be pressed. He should not be pressing ahead with a rise in VAT on the 4th of January and 20 billion of public spending cuts. Now I want to turn to another aspect of his financial plans. Can the Prime Minister confirm that the government is now set to break the promise made in the coalition agreement which said we will guarantee that health spending increases in real terms in each year of the Parliament? Well, well, first of all, being a bystander would be having no plans to deal with our economic problems. And the fact is, this government is cutting corporation tax, is abolishing Labour's jobs tax, reducing national insurance, increasing uh, our jobs programme. And you can see, no one should be complacent, but complacency is actually having no answers. No one should be complacent, but we do see retail sales up, exports up manufacturing up, interest rates coming down since the election, and growth higher than expected. I'm not the slightest bit complacent about what we need to do, but let's not talk down the performance of our economy. Now, turning to, turning to the NHS, we have uh, increased the NHS budget by £10 billion in this Parliament. And I have to say to him, there was only one party that stood on the election of saving the NHS and its spending, and it was right here. <laughs> so I am confident, I am confident that we will fulfil our goal of real terms increases every year in the NHS. Well, that's very interesting that he says he's confident, Mr Speaker. He should listen to what the... He should listen to what the Conservative-led Health Select Committee said only on Monday. They they said this, that with inflation now higher, and I quote, the government's commitment to a real-terms increase in health funding will not be met. Now, Now, we all remember those posters during the election. We all remember his face airbrushed on those posters. Will he now admit that he's breaking that promise? not breaking that promise. We, have, no. we, we want to see NHS spending increase by more than inflation every year. And let me just be clear, let me just be clear about who supports this policy. The Shadow Chancellor said this, it wasn't, it's not, it's not vague this, it's pretty clear. When asked, is it right to protect NHS spending, he said there is no logic, sense or rationality to it at all. So that is, let's be clear. On this side of the House, we want real terms increases in health spending to make sure that we improve the health of our nation. The party opposite is committed to cutting the NHS. Mr Speaker, I know he's good at the broad brush and he's good at the airbrush and he doesn't do detail, but he should read he should he should he should read he should read the report. He should read the report. He should read the report which says health service spending health service spending will be cut next year in real terms. Now, let me turn to his next broken promise on the NHS. He pledged and the coalition agreement says we will stop top-down reorganisations of the NHS that have got in the way of patient care. But that is exactly what they're forcing on the health service. Fewer than one in four doctors think it will improve patient services, and independent experts say it will cost three billion pounds. After six months, isn't an old truth being confirmed? When it comes to the NHS, you can't trust the Tories. 
there are moments I think I'm up against basil brush. Um, <laughs> <laughs> First of all, first of all, when it comes to protecting the NHS, there's only one, or only one side of this house is committed to protecting the NHS spending. That is this side. Right. Now we come on to reforming the NHS. We are not reorganising the bureaucracy of the NHS. We are cutting and abolishing the bureaucracy of the NHS. Because we are making a 45% saving in the bureaucracy of the NHS, that is going to save £1.9 billion. And because we're increasing the spending of the NHS, that money will be going into hospitals and beds and nurses and doctors. All of those things would be cut if it was up to the party opposite, because they don't have a commitment to maintaining NHS spending. Mr Speaker, he's breaking his promise and he doesn't want to admit it. What, what does he want to do? He wants to leave it to the back end of the pantomime horse, the Deputy Prime Minister, to break the, to break the promises. It's, it's, time the, it's time the front end of the pantomime horse took some responsibility. Now, I want to I ask, ask him about another broken promise, the broken promise on educational maintenance allowances. Why doesn't he go a couple of miles away from here? I know he doesn't talk to students, only those in China. Why doesn't he go a couple of, a couple of miles away from here to Southwark College and talk to the students and the teachers there? The business teacher there wrote to me and said this. I would have thought they'd want to listen to the fate of students and young people up and down this country. I see the benefits, the educational maintenance allowance provides for many of my learners. I see how they struggle to pay for transport, books and other essentials. How can we expect them to aspire to a better life if we deny them the means to do so? Well, the Honourable General wants to talk pantomime. I'm afraid it won't be long before he's thinking, look behind you. <laughs> the problem... The, uh, the problem with the educational maintenance allowance is that 90, research shows that over 90% of those who receive it would stay on at school anyway. And so the fact is, because we are raising the school participation age to 18, it's right that we replace the educational maintenance allowance with something better targeted. But I have to say to him, he's got to look at the bigger picture. And the bigger picture is that we inherited a completely wrecked set of public finances. The questions he asks. It's always about this cut or that cut. We know which cuts he's against, but he hasn't actually made one single suggestion of how you dig the country out of the pit of debt that he left us in. Truth is, Mr. Speaker, that he began the year making promises and now he's breaking them. The, the promise on NHS spending, broken. The promise on educational maintenance allowances, broken. The promise on universal child benefit, broken. The promise on knife crime, broken. The promise on new politics, broken. Shouldn't his New Year's resolution for 2011 be to keep the promises he made in 2010? Mr Speaker, I think it is put quite simply. They started the year with a leader who was dithering and had no answers on the economy. They have ended the year with a leader who is dithering and has no answers on the economy. I suppose, in Labour terms, that's what passes for being progress. Stewart. 
Uh, the, the Bletchley Park Trust in my constituency is hoping to buy for the nation uh, the personal papers of Alan Turing, the heroic wartime codebreaker. While the Trust is confident of raising the funds uh, to buy these papers, there is a danger that the auction may take place before they've had a chance to do so. Will my right honourable friend do all he can to give Bletchley Park a fair chance to secure these important documents for the nation? Well, I would certainly like to do that because I think my honourable friend is entirely right. I mean, Alan Turing was a remarkable man, and all those people who worked at Bletchley Park during the war, cracking the Enigma Code, there are still many of them who are still alive, and we owe them a huge debt of gratitude. They made a decisive difference in winning the Second World War. We should praise all of those. Of course, I hope that private donors would generously support the fundraising campaign, and I'm very happy to work with him and do anything I can to help make that happen. Joan Ruddock. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Earlier, the Prime Minister expressed concern about unemployment. Unemployment in his constituency is 1.5%. In my constituency, 7.3%. A full job centre plus services available in Whitney he has decided to close down the Deptford Job Centre. This cannot meet any test of fairness, so will he personally review this disastrous decision? I very happily look at the distribution of job centres, but the fact is, through local government and other spending, we do put a lot more money into deprived areas in our country. Yes, we do. And if you look... I had a little check before coming to question time. If you look at what's happening to grant changes, for instance, comparing my constituency with the Right Honourable Gentleman, the cut in grant in my constituency is 27% greater than in his. So I simply don't accept, I simply don't accept that this government isn't being fair and helping those who need help the most. Nadim Zahawi. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Um, all of us in this chamber would have had tragic cases of late diagnosis of cervical and breast cancer in our constituencies. Cancers that should and can be survived. The Prime Minister promised to do more while in opposition. Now that we are in government, what is my right honourable friend doing about the unacceptably low survival rates? Well, my honourable friend is absolutely right to raise this issue, and the first thing we did was we made good on our promise of a cancer drugs fund. We put money into that fund so thousands of people who were without the drugs they needed can now get them. We want to see further improvements on cancer screening. We want to see much more focus on cancer outcomes. And unlike the party opposite, we're prepared to put the money in to make sure it happens. John McDonald. According to the latest statistics, over the last year, on 665 occasions, children of asylum seekers were placed in detention centres. It means that this Christmas it's highly likely that there will be children in our detention centres. Could I ask the Prime Minister, this is not a party political point, could I ask the Prime Minister on behalf of the whole House to give this commitment that by the next Christmas, 2012, there will be no children of asylum seekers in detention centres and there never will be again? Well, the Honourable Gentleman makes an important point, and we made a commitment in our coalition agreement to address this issue, and the Deputy Prime Minister will be making a statement tomorrow about how we're going to end this scandal. Mr Edward Lee, as Naval Aviation celebrates its centenary, will by Right Honourable Friend guarantee that the promised transfer of 20 Merlin helicopters from the RAF to the Fleet Air Arm does indeed take place. Otherwise, critical mass may be lost, and the first hundred years of a service that has defended us in peace and war may be the last hundred years. 
Can, can I um, make this point to my honourable friend, who's absolutely right to raise this, and of course I'll look at the issue of the Merlin transfer that he raises, but we should be clear, Britain is still going to have uh, the fourth largest defence budget anywhere in the world. And in terms of the Navy, we're going to have seven astute class submarines, 19 destroyers and frigates, 14 minesweepers and other vessels, obviously the Royal Marines and our nuclear deterrent. We are going to have a large and fit-for-purpose Navy of which the country can rightly be proud. David Lammy. The Prime Minister will be aware that there are two great football clubs in North London, Tottenham Hotspur and Enfield Town. <laughs> he will also be aware that Spurs are considering moving across London to the East End, to the Olympic Park. Will he join me in Spurs fans who joined and uh, signed the petition to say no to Tottenham Hotspur, to urge the Spurs chairman to put the club and its history before shareholder value? I think uh, my recent experience has taught me to stay out of uh, international football management. And so I think, um, if it's all right, while paying tribute to his uh, club and to Enfield Town and, of course, to Arsenal as well, I think it would be right to do that. Um, I think I'll let them make the decision, but it is true to say, in the Olympic site, there's going to be a fantastic stadium that I hope some fo one football club will take advantage of. Malcolm Bruce. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Will the Prime Minister join me in thanking those postal service workers across the UK, uh, who, including those I visited in Inverurie, Dice uh, and Ellen, um, who are uh, struggling to deliver through snow and, and ice, and that they should be appreciated. But can you also agree with me that those mail-order firms who are cancelling Christmas in Scotland by refusing to accept orders should accept that they cannot and do not match the universal service in postal services, and that's why it should be secured and protected? Uh, I think the Honourable General makes an extremely good point, and I'm sure that everyone in this House on all sides of this House, many of whom will take the opportunity to visit um, sorting offices this Christmas, will want to put on record our support and thanks for the very good work that postal workers do right across the country in, in uh, making sure everything is delivered in time for Christmas. I know in Scotland they're having a particularly difficult time and additional air and rail services have been laid on to speed the movement of mail, mail in and out of Scotland and Royal Mail itself has made a big investment, £20 million, in order to try and deal with the most severe weather that they faced in 30 years. But as I say, Mr Speaker, let's all pay tri tribute to those who are going to make sure that cards and presents are delivered on time. Mr David Hamilton. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Can I follow on with that question? It has been horrendous in Scotland and indeed the north of England. The only people who are delivering are the Royal Mail. The private companies have offloaded their, their, their commitments to the Royal Mail. The £20 million that the Royal Mail has invested is important. Can he give a guarantee and a straight answer? Is he going to guarantee the, the, the universal service? And can he and his friend next to him make sure that they review the Royal Mail's privatisation and step back from it? Yeah. The whole point about trying to get private capital and management involved in the Royal Mail is to make the service better and to make sure it can go on doing all the things we want it to do. Honourable members opposite shake their head, including the Leader of the Opposition. The fact is, in the last Parliament, they were going to bring forward plans because even they realised this needs to be done. Mary MacLeod. Would the Prime Minister join me in paying tribute to the service of the Gurkhas and especially yeah, yeah. to my Chiswick resident, Havildar Lakshmihimum Garung, who died on December 12, aged 92. He won the Victoria Cross while serving with the Gurkha Rifles in Burma in 1945, 
where he demonstrated outstanding gallantry and extreme devotion to duty in the face of almost overwhelming odds. I will certainly join the Honourable Lady in paying tribute to the Gurkhas, both past and present. And anyone who goes to Afghanistan and sees how many Gurkhas there are, not just in the, in the Gurkha rifles, but also in some of the logistic regiments as well, serving our country extremely well, we owe them the greatest debt of gratitude and we always make sure it is paid in full. Mr Ronnie Campbell. This has been a momentous week with the troubling of tuition fees for students and, of course, the average rise in grants or decrease in grants of 10% for local councils. And, of course, we've been told this week that the Chancellor has to build up a war chest of £50 billion yeah. just in time for the general election by, by paid for by working people and their families. That's right, that's the question. Well, I'm not quite sure what the question was. Let me just answer the point on fees with putting this point on the record. The Institute for Fiscal Studies has looked carefully at our plans and they find, and I quote, by decile of graduate lifetime earnings, the government's proposals are more progressive than the current system or that proposed by Lord Brown. The highest earning graduates would pay more on average than both the current system and that proposed by Lord Brown, while lower earning graduates would pay back less. And I would say to the party opposite, including the Honourable Member, if you want a progressive system for tuition fee reform, this is what we offer. In terms of dealing with the deficit, what is absolutely vital is we get on top of it. That is good for everyone in, the, in this country, his constituents included. Anne McIntosh. Will the Prime Minister ensure that the primary care trusts, the strategic health authorities and all the NHS bureaucracy serve the patients, not their own interests? And will he further ensure that the Secretary of State for Health interferes to stamp out any excessive failures caused by this unnecessary bureaucracy? Well, I agree with the Honourable Lady, but the key is to try and get rid of so much of the bureaucracy. I mean, under the last government, the number of managers went up faster than the number of nurses. And our aim is to reduce that bureaucracy, get rid of that bureaucracy, and put power in the hands of GPs and their patients. So the decisions that are taken in our constituencies about hospitals, about services, are driven by the choices our constituents make rather than decisions made by bureaucrats. That's the key to these reforms and why I hope everyone in the House will support them. Mr Speaker, is there any truth in the rumour that the Liberal Democrats will be moving the writ for the Oldham, East and Saddleworth by-election tomorrow for January the 13th, thus denying the good people of Oldham a politician-free Christmas and New Year? <laughs> is this unseemly haste over the festive season a cynical attempt by the government to avoid the wrath of the public and especially students on tuition fees, school cuts and police cuts. A message. Prime Minister give an answer. Do I gather the party opposite is frightened of having an election? <laughs> are they, are they uh, I would I would put the question I would put the question the other way. Why should the people of that constituency put up with not having a member of parliament? And what have you lot got to be frightened of? Andrew Bridgen. Uh, thank you, Mr Speaker. Would the Prime Minister outline to the House steps the Governor taking to cut through the legacy of red tape and bureaucracy we inherited from the last Government and deliver real value for money frontline services? 
There's no doubt that regulation has got out of control in this country, and that is why my right hon. Friend, the Business Secretary, is introducing a new one-in-one-out rule, so that any time the government wants to legislate or regulate, it has to remove a regulation first. It's this sort of discipline I think can make a real difference. To Alistair MacDonald. Thank you very much, Mr Speaker. Could I put on the record my appreciation and the appreciation of many for the goodwill and the practical neighbourly support the Prime Minister and the Chancellor have shown to Ireland at this difficult time. It makes very good sense because the Irish economy, the Northern Ireland economy and the British economy are closely intertwined. But the economic indications at present in Northern Ireland are that Northern Ireland is still in the decline and that the economy is in serious need of a boost. Could I ask the Prime Minister for his assessment of the possibility of a boost to the Northern Ireland economy through corporation tax being reduced to 12.5%. The, the Honourable Member makes a good point about the economy in Northern Ireland. We want to see it recover, we want to see it grow, but I think everyone in Northern Ireland knows that the size of the state, the size of government in Northern Ireland has got too big and we've got to see a private sector recovery. Now we are looking at all sorts of ideas including the enterprise zone that my right honourable friend referred to. And I'd also like to put on record my thanks for those Northern Irish members who are going to support us in what we're doing to help the Republic of Ireland in its time of need. The people of Bromsgrove are immensely proud of our brave servicemen and women. That is why Bromsgrove District Council has decided to give the freedom of the district to the Mercian Regiment next month. Will the Prime Minister join me in congratulating the decision of the Council and does he believe that we can all do more to honour our heroes? I certainly join my honourable friend and I think that Bromsgrove is absolutely right to honour the Mercian Regiment in this way and it brings an important point out which is yes we have responsibility as a government and as a House of Commons to deliver on the military covenant for our personnel in the in, in this armed services but I think there's a broader responsibility which is on businesses, on the media, on us as individuals, on the whole country to work out what more can we do to recognise the bravery of these people who do so much on our behalf. You Bailey. There are 1,238 students at York College who come from families poor enough to qualify for a, a full educational maintenance allowance. That's one child in three at the college. Uh, and the Chair of Governors describes the government's plans for EMAs as totally unacceptable and rep- the replacement funding as woefully inadequate. I know the Prime Minister visits North Yorkshire from time to time. Will he show that he cares about social mo- mobility, that he really is a One Nation Tory, and meet people from the college to discuss? I think we've got the thrust of it. Prime Minister. I absolutely accept we've got to do more to help people get from the very bottom to the very top. That's why we've saved the per-pupil funding. That's why we're increasing the pupil premium. And I have to say to him, when we look at uh, what happened over the last few years, since 2004, child poverty rose by 100,000. Inequality reached the highest level since 1961. And five million people were stuck on out-of-work benefits. That's why we need to change the way that we help people to get on in life. And that's exactly what we're committed to doing. Mike Freer. As we approach Thank you. As we approach Holocaust Memorial Day, will the Prime Minister confirm that this government will generously donate to the Auschwitz Birkenau Restoration Fund? 
I can do that. Auschwitz-Birkenau is a very powerful reminder of the <laughs> ultimate consequences of intolerance, and it is only right that it should be preserved to bear witness to the deaths of the millions of victims who perished there, and as a stark reminder of man's humanity, inhumanity to, to man. The director of the Auschwitz-Birkenau Foundation has recently visited the UK to discuss funding with a number of government departments, and we're also involved in EU discussions as well. I think everyone in this House knows how important it is to maintain these memorials so that because obviously we remember the Holocaust, but we must also remember that there have been other acts of gross inhumanity more recently, and, and we have to go on remembering to stop that from happening again. Kevin Barron. And the Prime Minister tell the House that when he appointed the ex-member for Arundel and South Down to the other place, did he know his thoughts that state benefit is were an incentive to breed, and is this another example of the new politics he promised the country? I don't know how long that one thought to, took to think up. Uh, look, the Honourable Member, the now Member of the House of Lords, completely withdrew and apologised for what he said, which was completely uh, unacceptable. Uh, and, and I think I'm prepared to leave it at that. Andrea Ledson. Is my right honourable friend aware of the concern of many people at reports in the press that he plans to support high-speed rail regardless of the consultation next year? And would he spread a bit of Christmas cheer by reassuring my constituents that he will keep an open mind and that he won't be railroading through a railroad? Thank you. I, I completely understand the concern that there is all, the long, all the way along the proposed line, and obviously people are worried about it. And yes, this is a proper consultation. It must be a proper consultation, and, and it will be. But I would just say this, as I've said before at this dispatch box, for 50 years we've been trying to deal with the north-south divide. We've been trying to have a more effective regional policy, and I do believe high-speed rail has got a really effective role to play in bringing our country closer together and spreading economic benefits throughout all of our country. Alison McGovern. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Students in Wirral tell me they need their EMA for travel to go to the sixth formal college of their choice. <coughs> Catherine McCormack, head of South Wirral School, says without EMA, choice and diversity are not supported. Does the Prime Minister think choice of courses is only for those who can afford it? Yes. I have to say to the Honourable Lady that we looked very carefully at the study that was completed under the government of the Labour Party that showed that nine out of ten of those people receiving educational maintenance allowance would have stayed on at school anyway. And you have to ask the question. Look, this is why the party opposite landed us in such a mess over the economy. You have to ask the question about value for money and are you spending money in the correct way. We are not abolishing EMAs, we are replacing EMAs with something more effective. But at a time, I have to say, uh, members ask the question, they must listen to the Prime Minister's answer. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. At a time when we are legislating to raise the participation age to 18, you do have to ask the question, is it right to spend so much money on asking people to do something that by law they'll be asked to do anyway? Robert Halfon. Uh, thank you, Mr. Speaker. Time and time again, we seem to be exporting extreme Islamist terrorists and suicide bombers to Afghanistan, Israel and now Sweden. What steps is my honourable friend taking to drain the poison of extreme Islamism from our country? Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, I think my honourable friend raises an incredibly important point, and I think if we're frank on both sides of the House, we have not done enough to deal with the promotion of extremist Islamism in our own country. Whether it is making sure that imams coming over to this country can speak English properly, whether it's making sure we de-radicalise our universities, I think we do have to take a range of further steps, and I'm going to be working hard to make sure that we do this. Yes, we've got to have the policing in place. Yes, we've got to make sure we invest in our intelligence services. Yes, we've got to cooperate with other countries, but we've also got to ask why it is that so many young men in our own country get radicalised in this completely unacceptable way. Order. Ten-minute rule motion.